Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to this event of London Thinks. We've got hashtag London Thinks, and there's very good Wi-Fi here if you want to um, tweet. We're also filming it for... Is it, is it live streaming, or is it just being filmed to go up later? Um, I think it depends on whether we expect our guests to swear. But um, you'll be able to watch it later, too. I'm going to introduce all the panellists, and um, we've got such an interesting range of backgrounds and experience. I think it's very much a conversation about... Why do we believe? Which will be everything from God to witches and werewolves. And um, I'm going to allow plenty of time for questions, so have some good ones. I'm going to introduce the order I've got on my piece of paper, which is alphabetical. Um, Alice Heron, who's sitting immediately to my right, is doing her PhD at the University of Surrey, and she's currently researching the mystical-type experiences of atheists. I gather you found a load here when you gave a talk a couple of years ago, um, and whether atheists have similar experiences to religious believers. Now, she was a member of the Sri Chinmoy cult for more than 25 years, and she's going to talk about that, how it changed from being a benign meditation group, as she thought, to a, a controlling cult, and its members did include Carlos Santana. Um, <laughs> Professor Bruce Hood, who's on the end of the panel here, is Professor of Developmental Psychology in Society at the University of Bristol. Uh, his books include Supersense, um, and he's written and thought extensively about how we're hardwired to try and see patterns and forces and essences kind of to make sense of our world, and has featured in the Skeptic's Top Trumps contact. Yeah, Very yeah. good. Highlighting my career. And um, delivered the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in 2011, which are all on YouTube and are great fun. Um, Deborah Hyde, who's just sitting a little um, further along from Alice there, is the editor of The Skeptic magazine and a film industry makeup effects coordinator, which is such a brilliant um, juxtaposition for tonight's <laughs> discussion, I think. Um, she writes and lectures extensively about superstition and cryptozoology, the belief in non-existent beasts like Bigfoot and werewolves and vampires. And... I think quite interestingly, has previously worked in the business of collectibles, and we're talking about mm. objects with sacred powers and, and things we have to have. Um, and I notice you've also been a corpse queen in the film The Brothers Grimm, yes. and, yes, I, I and a devilish leaf in the first Harry Potter film. Yeah, I was, I was the best leaf, I was the most expressive leaf, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. I was basically under a rostrum all day in the freezing cold going like this. Okay. Um, professor Francesca Stavrakopoulou is Professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Religion at Exeter University. And uh, Bible, biblical studies is very much your um, specialism, the texts, um, and has looked a lot at how religious... In literal interpretation has, has developed over the years, um, and a real focus on the Abrahamic religions and their origins in other belief systems. Professor Richard Wiseman um, completes our panel. He's uniquely equipped to understand the self-delusion of the human mind, being both a practising magician and Britain's only professorship in the public understanding of psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. And his books include Paranormality, Why We See What Isn't There, and The Luck Factor, The Scientific Study of the Lucky Mind. So thank you all very much. Um, yes, absolutely, I think. <laughs> I want to start just by asking Alice briefly, for the benefit of those who don't know, just tell us a bit about how you came to spend, is it 27 years mm -hmm. in a cult, and what got you in there, um, what kept you there, and how come you left? Um, well, it started, Sri uh, Chinmoy, who, this was in the early 70s, before the internet or anything like that, and Sri uh, Chinmoy came to Britain um, to do a university lecture tour, and my sister and her husband 
went to the lecture and they became his first followers. So this is how I heard about it. But with a lot of these um, cults or any belief system really, it's often the people, first of all, that, that you identify with and then you begin to pick up their way of thinking. So that was what happened with me. I, I got to know the people who were um, the disciples of Sri Chinmoy and then eventually I also joined four years after my sister. And it, sort of, it was sort of Hindu-inspired beliefs. Yeah. Um, at what point, I'm just almost interested that once you did become a full-time member, what made you suddenly decide to leave? Was it suddenly? No, it wasn't suddenly. And again, this, this is very common in cults. It took me at least five years to actually leave. Um, I was beginning to have doubts. I was becoming unhappy with a lot of the things that were going on. Um, but I felt if I leave... I'm giving it all up, everything I've done, I'm giving it up because no one would be allowed to talk to me. Um, so then I'd stay on for a while and then I'd get unhappy and I'd want to leave. So it really took me five years before I decided, okay, that's it, and I gave myself a date and I left. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to start then with a question, I don't know what to take it first, but is there a fundamental difference between religion and kind of folklore beliefs of the kinds we know go back to you know, very, very early societies? No, not at all. There's, there's no um, basic distinction or difference. In, in a way, what we think is going on is, is a sort of socially and culturally inherited notion of a, a false dichotomy that what makes one person's religion a religion is, is, you know, is, is what makes somebody else's belief system as valid. So we try to suppose that a religion has to have certain sorts of things. So longevity is one of the most important, a collection of sacred texts a leader who's dead. So when somebody comes along who is alive and there's not this sense of some kind of, um, you know, over generations and generations, a sense of continuity and, and some kind of cultural pedigree or religious pedigree, that's when people start kicking off and saying it's, it's a cult. But it, there's no difference at all. The only main difference is size. Is really yeah, exactly. The only most, main most difference is size. die, but one or two survive, yeah. Um, I know you looked a lot at folklore, and there is often an overlap, but isn't there a distinction between, um, I mean, this whole idea that magic is science we don't understand yet, that people can sort of say we don't believe in witches, but we can still believe in God? Um, I, I think, incidentally, magic is uh, infinitely more respectable than religion. Um, and, <laughs> and, and we've ended up with science because of magic rather than because of religion. Um, it depends how you... I think it depends how you de define religion and it depends how you define folklore. But I'm with Francesca on this, really. There are different types of, uh, you know, within those groupings, there are different ways of believing folklore. You could believe something literally happened or you could believe that it's a sort of a very moral just-so story that goes to the core of your being and how you live. And you can do that with religion too. So um, I, uh, I quite often say superstition is religion. Uh, with, oh, religion is superstition with politics, um, and you know you can you can run the whole gamut. Some some at the thin end you've got people thinking that it's not particularly respectable, and at the other end people think it's incredibly respectable because it's religion and it's been around a long time. But um, no, it's it's all belief systems. What are your thoughts? Um, uh, don't you want to go first? Yeah, actually, um, I, I would um, think that religions are more consistent with existential crisis and moral issues about why we're here and how we should behave, whereas folklore is more fragmented, I would have thought. Uh, fundamentally, yes, they appeal to supernatural phenomenon, so that is the unifying aspect of it. But I think most people would um, treat them as differently. Uh, folklore is much more spontaneous. Uh, werewolves have nothing to do with 
the meaning of life, and it's more to do with rumors. And so I, I, I suppose I expect more organization. If I was to be religious, I'd want that for my religion. Okay, and Richard? I, I think there is a difference. I'd, I'd go with Bruce on that, because religions tend to be quite evangelical. Like, I can't remember the last time somebody knocked on my door and said, oh, you know, I'm trying to convince you about the gnomes. Um, <laughs> although, <laughs> strangely, I'd have a lot more time uh, for them. Uh, than, than Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but that's true of almost any uh, group. Uh, but um, I did actually, I, I, Jehovah's Witness knocked to my door once, and I said, if I were to go along with you on your door knocking, and every time you knocked on the door and you started to put your argument, I started to put an atheist argument to the person, <laughs> what would you do? And they said, well, we'd phone the police because that's harassment. <laughs> I thought, no, it's not, it's bloody double standards. Uh, so, so, in that, so in that sense, it's the evangelical uh, impact. The religious, uh, not all religions, but a lot of religions are about getting more uh, people to follow them. Where the, with the folklore, you know, there's, there's not a, a group of organised pro-werewolf people. I agree with that, though, because I think that our model of proselytising religions, which are organised from the top down, is um, a prejudice that we probably acquire from what we observe around us here and today. Whereas if, for example, um, if you take fairy folklore, which was mm -hmm. a religion, then it was, it was kind of self-evident um, truths about the supernatural which is natural, nature of the world, um, and it would be integrated into your day-to-day -day beliefs. But, but so, there's, there's no fair... Were there groups of individuals going out trying to convince others of fairies? Well, they didn't need to because they all belonged in the same community. No, it's, only, it's only certain forms of Christianity that do that. That's the model. I mean, in terms of Abrahamic religions, it's not really traditional in terms of Islam or Judaism to go out and try and convert others. It's a very Western Protestant model that you're adopting about religion. Whereas with the werewolves thing, of course werewolves are about existential crisis. They're about life and death and the relationship between animals and non-animals, which have been around for thousands of years within religions and mythologies and social ideas about what it is to be a person. So they are tapping into some of the things that mainstream religions but do they are they have moral codes? And Not every religion, but that's the thing. Again, it's this very Western Protestant idea of what a religion is. Not all religions have this moral code embedded within them. They don't, they're not, they're not fueled by a sense of some kind of coherent morality. Give an example of a religion which doesn't or didn't have uh, an embedded code of... Well, the religions, the ancient Israelite religion, that basically gave rise to Judaism and then Christianity, it wasn't anything about morality. It's very difficult to say the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible has an ethical system in it. Some scholars would disagree with me, but obviously they're wrong. But essentially, <laughs> essentially, it's not ethical or moral in that sense. Again, we're using these sorts of constructs that, that you're both sort of alluding to, have actually, um, you've been brainwashed by Western Protestant intellectual tradition. Listening to you speak, I think you're right, and uh, there's no difference. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> this is so I easy. Come back you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to go to the next. I, I, Sorry. I, I go ahead, Alice. That, I think there is a difference. What's, what do you I, think? I, is I think the difference? religion is concerned with the sacred, and it's also about a journey, um, ab about salvation or realization with God or something. I think it's it's. Um, it's a sacred that, that holds communities together when they believe in the same, the same idea of the sacred. And um, I think they're much more powerful as well than just folklore. I think religion, because they feel they're divinely inspired, they can inspire people to, to fight and to, or to be peaceful. So they're much more powerful. They, they grab the heart more and the aspiration more. Um, so I, I would say it is different, it's a different level than just folklore. Okay. I would say. 
Thank you. I want to move on to a different issue, quite a specific one. Um, I'm interested in how humans learn to manipulate in the first place via trickery. Because obviously a big part of a lot of um, religions has been you know, a belief that there's something magical and only special mediators, priests or so on have powers. And, and often working aspects of magic or the beliefs in sacred flames and things. So I thought I'd ask you first, Richard, um, someone who started out as a magician, what's your understanding on this power? You know, humans working out that if I can make people believe something, then I... I can be the chief priest or whatever. Um, well, there's, there's so many issues there. I, I think just speaking as a magician involved in magic, uh, so, so magicians do remarkable things on stage and no one thinks they're in touch with any godlike figure. And no one goes, my goodness, they've sawn someone in half, I, I believe. Um, other than you might believe um, they've potentially just sawn someone in half. So I, so I think that's, that's within that frame. They're working within an entertainment frame. Of course, people that then use the same trickery, uh, but working within a religious framework, can convince other people quite quickly because, you know, why follow, you know, a whole lot of potential people to follow, why follow one person and the other? Because they can perform miracles. And so one of the things that really annoys magicians is that they work very hard to produce amazing tricks that you cannot work out because they're working within an entertainment frame and the audience trying to work out how the trick's done. When you go to seances, or I, I spent quite a lot of time going around India looking at uh, gurus uh, faking stuff, they're, they're, they're magic is crap. It's rubbish. <laughs> it is utter rubbish. And there's all these people going, oh my goodness, this is, this is you know, proof of the divine. And you think, no, it's just proof of somebody who hasn't put the, the time into the sleight of hand uh, that's, that's required. So, so the frame that we, we look at uh, an event through really, really matters. And, and so most of the trickery that's involved in within a religious frame is normally pretty bad trickery, but far more powerful because people are seeing it as evidence of something supernatural. Is it also about the kind of collective, um, you know, the whole idea of if everyone around you seems to believe this notion of you don't want to be the one who doesn't see it, I guess the psychological a, manipulation. Yeah, I mean, there's be a few things going on. I mean, most people, their quotes want to, to, to believe, um, you know, the notion there's some sort of physical evidence which would then convince them rather than, than just sort of a uh, psychological uh, approach, I think is good. But I, I think the main thing is that um, you're seeing evidence of, of, of something miraculous, but when you see better evidence in an entertainment frame, you dismiss it as trivial. And I find that really interesting. Um, and so with the, the, the Indian gurus I saw, they, they produced vibhuti, this kind of fine ash used in um, uh, worship. And honestly, it was a terrible, terrible trick. It was awful. And I was standing at the back thinking, you could do that a lot better if, if you just, you know, um, <laughs> took your hand out your pocket uh, <laughs> while you're doing it. Um, but that didn't matter. I'd got the wrong end of the stick. It didn't matter. The fact is that, that, for, that for the people there, that was a miracle. And, and, and of course, you know, that, that matters in terms of manipulation. Bruce, what are your thoughts about... How, I, mean, cause well, it is some, I, I, I know I'm not supposed to use this phrase, but people are fascinated by what we understand about how the brain actually works and its relationship with this kind of belief. Uh, okay, well, yeah. Um, we are very unusual in the sense that... Uh, we exchange a lot of information, and what makes us very successful is that we uh, can use other people's information to advance our needs. Uh, so language and communication is something which allows us to share ideas and beliefs. And we're inclined to believe what we're told. Uh, in fact, uh, not believing is actually harder. So there's some research showing that uh, you actively have to ignore uh, what someone says, and that creates anxiety and a little bit of activation in those areas. Uh, so we're inclined to believe right from the very beginning. Children will believe testimony. Um, they're not uh, promiscuous in who they believe. They tend to focus on those people who in the past have shown to be reliable. 
But it's in our nature to literally try and accept what we're told. It's also in our nature not to be excluded. So if there is a group of people all saying the same thing, then we've known for 50, 60 years that the power of, of groups to shift our perceptions is remarkable. And to the extent that you will see you know, a different color of someone, if everyone else says it's the same color, and you will actually shift your perspective. So you combine that need for testimony with that power to be included, then it's no surprise the extent to which people will just adhere to testimony and what other people say. And, and that becomes a very powerful binding mechanism because especially in the absence of objective evidence, you then have what we call faith. And if you accept faith, then you're demonstrating your willingness to accept something in the absence of objective evidence, which proves how much conviction you have and therefore how more devout you are. So you combine these kind of mechanisms and you've got a perfect recipe for creating religious doctrines. Can I just point out this stage is how we lay the story. My son revealed to me that he worked out at the age of four that Santa didn't exist. Did I tell you this ever? And I asked, and he kept it secret because, you know, they know what's in it for them if they do. And, <laughs> and it was really interesting because he said, well, all the Father Christmas books are in the fiction section of the library. <laughs> he was four. No. Anyway, um, Alice, the, the guru of this cult that you were in, he, he was performing miracles, allegedly, wasn't he? What, 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 not, no, not really. I mean, um, we, we believed he could do things like um, heal. If someone, if someone was sick, um, if one of his disciples was sick, or if, if your mother was sick, you would tell him. And he had a, a win-win situation that if mother got better, then he had intervened and made her better. If mother didn't get better, then it was just God's will, and, or maybe her karma or something, that you had to go through this. So the, they were, the kind of miracles he did were not the kind you could ever check. They were really just based on faith. How do you look back on that? Because you talk about it so rationally now, but you, know, you were in that cult for all those years. What did you think at the time, and why did you believe him at the we time? We believed that um, he was uh, like a divine incarnation, well, I was brought up a Catholic, so I was familiar with the idea of a divine incarnation because Catholics um, consider Christ to have been a divine incarnation. So it was kind of easy to say, okay, well, Catholics believe in that, so um, maybe, maybe this is right, you know, and other people were believing that, so, so you did tend to believe it. And then you saw it through those eyes so that when he did things, you, you saw it as he, he was doing it. When he did odd things, you'd say, well, he's operating at a level we don't understand. What sorts of things? Well, he had, he had this um, idea, this, this is ridiculous, he had this idea he wanted to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> he wasn't too fussy which one it was going to be. <laughs> he, he started off wanting the Literature Prize and then he moved over to the Peace Prize. And it was, it was really embarrassing, you know, some of the things he was doing to try and get attention to get the, the Nobel Peace Prize. And you, you'd really cringe about it, but then you... Because you believed he was like a divine incarnation, you would think, well, he's doing it for reasons we don't understand, and so I just have to believe that he knows what he's doing, and it's all going to work out right in the end. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I really am fascinated by it. You're so calm and rational about it, um, and yet you've obviously lived that experience, so no, thank you for, for being here. Deborah, um, and then Francesca, what are your thoughts on this issue about um, just the whole way in which people can be manipulated to believe 
Particularly these kind of manifestations. They don't even need to be manipulated. They do it to themselves sometimes. Um, I'm reminded of an unfortunate man called uh, Gilles Garnier who was uh, prosecuted for being a werewolf in the 17th century. And the final... uh, There was lots of evidence against him um, because he was obviously a very careless werewolf. But (laughs) the the real cracker was that um, there were a couple of children attacked by a wolf and um, some people chased the wolf the wolf off and and took care of the children and it was a wolf in whom they recognized Garnier's features so if you if you're out for someone and and werewolf trials um, reformation era werewolf trials are absolutely classic cases of scapegoating and really going for somebody who people have disliked for 20 years or more you know going for someone in a village um, then he, you know, he really he he stood no chance. They were going for him. You can you can see that, um, and they probably needed very little supporting evidence. They they'd make it up. Francesca, I don't think necessarily any religion is setting out. I mean, you know, from my the stuff that I I study and, and teach about, I don't think any of these biblical writers or these ancient religious leaders were actually trying to trick anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they were coming from a very different sort of place, so they weren't deliberately trying to mislead. But there were certain things that you could do. There's a really... Um, I do this text with my students, and everyone, and, and actually the women, find it very shocking, because in the Book of Numbers, there's a story about a man who accuses his wife of adultery. And uh, he has to take her to the high priest, and the high priest creates this kind of concoction. He writes down a spell, so it's like magic words, and dissolves it into this concoction of water and dirt from the temple. She drinks it. Then the idea is that if her womb falls out, then she was guilty, so an aborting any kind of baby. Um, but then if her womb doesn't fall out, then she, she's innocent of adultery. But the point of that ritual is that it maintains the status of the husband, the cuckolded husband, because if her womb falls out, then he's, he can legitimately get rid of her and say that she's, you know, she's been a slag and that's it. He's not going to have anything to do with her. If her womb doesn't fall out, then the child is his. So in a way, a lot of these sorts of rituals that we see are more about uh, sort of endorsing or kind of privileging the status of those in power. So, so like your guru, that's about his kind of status and his sort of power. So I don't think necessarily it's about tricking people. Mm-hmm. I think it's about, I think you're absolutely right, it's about the sociality of people. We like to be in a group and religions arise and thrive when we all feel that we are being bound together socially. We're, we're, we're the most social, social animals on the mm. planet. And I, and I think it's that you want to, it's not that you necessarily want to believe, it's just that you will see what you think ought to be there. So it's sort of civil code, partly to create sort of social, yeah, keep social order. Corpor- it's a corporation, isn't it? It's like how you're going to get on best with each other, okay. and you get on best by cooperating. Could I add something to that? Also, um, I think that religious leaders may start off with high ideals, but once they get a gathering, they see the opportunity for manipulation and um, then it's a test of their character. Are they going to manipulate their followers for their own advantage? Or are they going to keep to what they really believe? And it's very, very common for them to manipulate their followers. Um, this is why so many of these gurus and leaders of religions, they start sexually exploiting the women and children. We should say, these sound like the, the smaller cults, don't they, in particular, where well, there's, there's you lot, have a, a, a closed of, group? There's a lot goes on anyway. I mean, no, I, I'm no one saying that there's not been sexual abuse <laughs> in wider religions. Yeah. But I, I mean, because my, my next... No, no, I think even a, a priest in the pulpit, 
if, if, if he manages to cast a spell over the, the congregation, he can do anything then. Even when I, even when I was giving meditation classes, sometimes um, I, I'd feel the, the audience in the, in the palm of my hand and I'd think, I could, I could actually do anything. Really, I could say anything that. to these people. Um, so is it just that power corrupt? That's basically what it is. Well, the opportunity's there. Yeah. They don't, it, it depends whether they go the corrupt route or not. You know, I don't think they'd all necessarily go the corrupt route, but I think the opportunity is there for mm. them to go that route. Thomas Beckett got very carried away with himself, didn't he? He was, um, he was very fond of his own importance, and a lot of them do go that way. But my, my, my question actually to, is to Alice, that in, in that 20 years, did none of you kind of go, you know what, I'm not quite so convinced about the, the way that he did that terrible magic trick or whatever it was? And if they did, what happened to that person? Were, were, any, were any doubts ever raised, and how were they dealt with? Um, no doubts were raised publicly. Um, doubt was like a hostile force, but there was always people leaving, right. new people coming in and people leaving. But, but if people left, you weren't allowed to talk to them. So the, you, never, oh. and you never actually heard what the doubts were. Okay. So when you were leaving, you were kind of on your own. I wondered, there was something about the late 60s and the 70s, and it was the 70s when you got involved in this group. I remember that 70s is this age of cults. There was a lot of panic about it. There were a lot of kind of TV news reports about um, cults like the Moonies and Scientology. And also, you know, political ideological cults like the Red Army Brigade and the Bardemeinhof Gang, which are quite interesting when you compare to modern panics about um, Islamic radicals. Um, and I wondered if there was something about that time... Um, I mean, I think most of us are old enough to remember the 70s. Okay, except for you. <laughs> except for you. Bloody hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm so old, I just assume everyone else is. But, you know, it's interesting because you think of the 70s. I don't think of the 70s as being an age that was particularly religious. You know, we'd had the counterculture. And how come there was such a rise in cults? I don't know if you have theories, almost from a scientific point of view. I don't remember the 70s. No, that's a lie. You don't? <laughs> I'd like to say I don't remember the 70s. But no, I... Uh, I remember a time where there, it was, I mean, I'm not a social historian. I, I can understand why these were not major issues in the 40s and 50s. And the 60s was the beginning of this, the new age and the, the attraction to Eastern philosophy. So I can see that all linking into the idea that the decline to some extent in traditional religions. Mm -hmm. But certainly, yeah, there were, there were phenomenon um, films on The Exorcist and, and a certain magician who I can't name because I know this has been streamed, who became to prominence because of his ability to bend spoons. You know, these were all, oh, you know who it is? You read my mind? Okay. Um, clearly, um, you know, clearly there, there, was, there were certain superstars uh, arising. Um, but I don't know if there was, I, I'm not qualified to say what was going on. What do you think? Because I was thinking ESP was part of it. And I mean, Leonard Nimoy presented that show about weird yes. things out there. It's all his fault, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think a few things going on. I mean, actually, traditionally, uh, paranormal beliefs, supernatural beliefs, whatever you want to call them, tend to flourish when economically it's difficult times. So just people rather like believing in a, a sort of simple solution. I think, as you say, you're coming off the back of the 60s, which is all about freeing up thinking and, and being open to new ideas. And also, you've got an explosion of mass media at that time. So it's much easier to become a celebrity, to get these ideas around the world very, very quickly. And you can do that. Oh, my goodness. That's a bit of a 
I thought, it's actually better without this, isn't it? I, I was, <laughs> it feels much more homely. Oh, and I say better with this one. There we are. Um, so, uh, and, uh, uh, so, so you have the, uh, the explosion of um, uh, celebrity. And also, I think it's hard for scepticism to catch up because, you know, you put out a message that somebody can bend spoons or do something miraculous. That goes all around the world very, very quickly. And then skeptics go, hold on a second, this might be sleight of hand. That doesn't catch up quite so quickly as messaging. So I think part of it is to do with the explosion of, of mass media. And also, you've then got Arthur C. Clarke sitting in there who made Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Huge, huge show. Um, some of it sceptical, some of it not so sceptical. I blame Arthur C. Clarke for the whole thing. Yeah. Everything. Well, I mean, yes, I was thinking about that. And, in fact, Deborah, we were talking um, before about like, the Henfield haunt haunting, Enfield haunting, sorry, um, which, you know, you have met um, one of the, the women who was a young girl involved in that. And there was a whole news uh, nationwide, like a news report, I suppose the equivalent of the one show in a way, but slightly more highbrow, actually going to the house and interviewing these girls yeah. and the voices. And, you know, you're just being presented as if it's a documentary. And although they were being slightly cynical, I can't imagine that anyone would run that as a news item today. And I just wondered if that reveals something of the times. Well, they certainly wouldn't have run that news item in the 50s when everybody was a lot more conservative. And the thing about the 70s was that um, I, I, I'd always go back to economics and technology, and technology sort of, you know, facilitates economics and so forth. Um, but uh, so I, I would say that it, there was a... The, uh, um, there was a certain kind of freelance religiosity about the 70s. Everybody, there was, um, it was less conformity, it was post-Second World War. Everybody felt that they were entitled to an opinion, you know, how could you tell me? So you would come up with your own beliefs and they were just as legitimate as anyone else's as more traditional um, religion started to lose its grip, a grip that it hasn't got back yet. It's also the rise of feminism, right? Because mm. in a way, you know, so that was hugely... Um, threatening, I think, to certain established religions and the patriarchy of those religions and the phallocentrism of those religions. Um, and I think, to a certain extent, some of the things that we see happening in the 70s and onwards into the 80s with the rise of kind of the big money idea, which, is, again, was very masculine. It was, very, it was dressed as very masculine, this kind of independent, mm. independence of thought and power. It was still very, very masculine. So I think it's quite interesting that a lot of the cases that we do see of kind of the, the, the rise of cults, you know, the leaders tend to be men. But the followers tend to be women. And like in the case of the Enfield hauntings, it's obviously it's going to be these, these young girls that are going to be the, the vehicle, if you like. Well, there's another aspect to that, um, which is the idea of the innocence of children being quite central to key moments of belief. So I was thinking back to, you know, miracles of, of children, in, in, certainly in Christianity, of visions of the Virgin Mary, uh, for example. Um, the baby Jesus. He's the most miraculous child. Oh, I, there weren't any children who saw him, though. Oh, no, being born. No, 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 sorry. No, no, I was no, no, you're right. That way. Um, and also the Cottingley... Well, they got, just give a couple of examples. Of, um, so the Cottingley fairies, which is that photograph that supposedly the fairies that fooled Arthur Conan Doyle, the cameras in the National Media Museum in Bradford, if you want to see it. Um, and the other example was Joan of Arc, who I find fascinating, who was, what, 16 when she started that? But that, that view, that notion that children are so... Um, angelic, they couldn't lie or cheat, could only come from someone who's never had any contact with children at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we used to do lying research years ago with kids, where you bring them into the lab and you set up their favourite toy behind them, and then you say, now don't look at your, the toy, as so they've got their back to the toy, and you go out, and then you secretly watch whether or not they turn around, and all kids over age turn around, peek at the toy. Then you come back in and say, well, did you peek at the toy? And so you can find out whether kids lie. Age three, around about 30% are lying to you. You've got two years to age five. I kid you not, it is 100% of children. 
so the idea that they're reliable witnesses or wouldn't fake something for attention uh, is absurd. I think whenever there's a child involved, you just simply assume they are faking it. Okay. Deborah. Is that it's one thing for a child to be at the centre of a peculiar event. It's quite another thing for that event to get a lot of publicity. Children are making stuff up all, all the time and doing stuff all the time. But when you look at particular events, um, like, for example, the Enfield haunting, those were two just, just regular kind of girls from working class family. Really, the, the story got out because a couple of middle class guys from the uh, Psychical Research Society took up the, the whole cause and they got the publicity. So it's, it's, if you look at the greater dynamics around the child, that's the thing that will really matter. In witch trials, there's an awful lot of young girls accusing people in witch trials. There was um, in the Lancashire witch trials of 1612, the Warboys witches. Um, you know, it, it centred around small girls, but it required people with a great deal of agency in the outside world to facilitate it getting bigger and in some cases getting dangerous and deadly. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on this, on the idea of innocence and children? I don't know how far... Were, were children brought up in the cult? Did people a, a marry few, and have a relationships? A few people um, joined and they had children, but you, when you were in, you were encouraged not to have children. Um, so there weren't an awful lot of children, but um, they were given special status. And they were put into choirs and things, but I, I don't know... They were told they were elite and they were more spiritual, but actually it turned out he was actually grooming them for, for later on. So I don't know, I don't, I don't know that um, in, in, in that particular group the children were, were really considered... To hold any yeah. power. Yeah. So it's about the status of children. So even in sort of non-Western <coughs> cultures, in traditional cultures, children particularly children around puberty, so sort of just before prepubescence or, or just around there, they're, they're neither infant nor adult. And so, the, and in a lot of cultures, they have this particular gift, this special power to be, to be able to kind of understand the, the divine powers that lie beyond the kind of experienced world. And so children are often, because they're so liminal socially, they're often seen to be very, very powerful, which is why I think even in European Christianity, you get a lot of these traditions that kind of formulate around kids, you know, like Joan of Arc, she would have been sort of similar, kind of like neither male nor female, neither warrior, nor, you know, it's, it's that kind of... And it's politically, it's interesting too, is obviously there was a whole nationalist dynamic around Joan of Arc. I made a documentary about the wife of Oliver Cromwell, and what's interesting about that age is, um, you know, you have a lot of the kind of new Puritan um, thinking about preaching, and a lot of women coming forward and saying, I can be a preacher too. And that, in a way, their femininity is what grants them a special status because they are regarded as a kind of innocent, and that they might have a, a purer a link to God. But there's something quite potentially democratic about opening up preaching to women, so that's another way of looking at it. Um, my next question I wanted to ask was about whether atheists are as susceptible to certain kinds of belief systems. For example, cults of sacred objects like collectibles. Uh, collectibles. Um, well, this, this goes back to what Bruce expands on a great deal about the, the essence that something actually has, a, a, an essence that isn't obvious from its sheer physicality. Would you tell us about another this? element? Research. Uh, it dates back to uh, Plato. Um, the idea is that uh, we attribute inherent properties, uh, a dimension, if you like, an energy or force to things which confer their identity. Um, we, rec we call it psychological essentialism now, and it's something which naturally emerges in children, that in the domain, for example, living things, um, they're not only essentialists, but also vitalists. 
So vitalism is the belief that there's a life force or an energy which makes things alive. Um, when you look at that from a biological perspective, actually that becomes a very fragile kind of concept. What is it to be alive? But intuitively, we just think of there being something which makes it alive, even though you can't articulate it. In the same way, we feel that there's something about an original object that we have some emotional connection or what we value that makes it unique and irreplaceable. Were you the one who passed around the pen? Sorry? Were you the one who passed around the pen? Earlier tonight? No, in, in, you've done it in the past. You passed around a pen? Was that you, Richard? I, I have passed around a pen. And <laughs> yeah. then, no, but, yeah. I'm but like then that. I'm said, just naturally social. But then said who, who it... Oh, you mean, yes, yeah, yeah, I did that, yeah, sorry. Go so, on, tell us about that. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Yeah, so, um, so th that was based on an observation by Paul Rosen um, that we have uh, an automatic disgust response if we think we come into close proximity of contact. So it wasn't a pen, it was a killer's cardigan. I said, would you put a cardigan on? And people say, yes, of course, no problem. But then you say, well, it belonged to uh, you know, Fred West or Jeffrey Dahmer, depending on where you do the stunt. And uh, people immediately feel disgusted that somehow coming into physical contact would contaminate them. So there's like a moral contagion issue. Now, that's essentialism to some extent, that somehow the essence of a killer can be imbued or contaminate the clothing. But the opposite too. Sorry, I, so yep. I thought... You can do it with a pen and you can do it with Einstein. The effect is better for negative contagion rather than positive right. contagion. But, but you passed around a pen and then at some point said, this pen belonged to Einstein yeah. and suddenly everyone <laughs> holds the pen in a different way. That's right, yeah. So you feel... <laughs> uh, but actually, it turns out, if you can do it with a, you can do it with a, a putter, you know, a golfing putter, if you say it belongs to Arnold Palmer, people are better at putting. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. But you don't, but it doesn't need to be, it doesn't have to have a celebrity status or a special status. I mean, because in your field, you know, you call it kind of essentialism, whatever. In, in my field, you would call it agency, like the social life of an object. It has a social life. It's about its ability to impact and, and structure social action and social change. And so it doesn't have to be a celebrity object at all. I mean, I'm, I'm quite, you know, we're all, think about our mobile phones. We're all really attached to our mobile phones. They have become an extension of our person and of who we are. And that's exactly what's going on in religions, whether it's with a crucifix or the, you know, the bread and wine. There's a sense in which somehow objects can impact us in ways that but we that interact with that is different, isn't it? Socially. Because there's an emotional power to knowing it belonged to someone that you respect. No, but if you go into a sacred space, say if you go into an ancient stone circle, you, know, you, you, still, you, know, you might not have an emotional relationship with that particular place, but you'll probably act quite differently. There are certain ways that you, you wouldn't behave in that stone circle. There are certain ways I wouldn't behave in that stone circle. And I'm, you know, quite naughty sometimes. You are. I know, yeah. Francesca. She's very naughty. But even I wouldn't do so, okay. you know. <laughs> what are your thoughts about sacred objects and um, the fact that they seem to... Well, objects can seem to have a belief power, even if you don't believe in a belief system. I think that's quite interesting. Well, people, are, people are nervous of not throwing salt over their shoulder or of, you know, encountering the number 13. Even people who are perfectly good atheists are sometimes nervous of the number 13. And um, names and spells are, are, in effect, they're a way of collecting a supernatural pile of ideas together and condensing them into something else, condensing them into, you know, a spell which will go out and will have power, or a, a name which can evoke somebody even if they're not here, you know, we can say something and it is the essence of them, it's not just a separate representation, you can do dreadful things to them by misusing their name. Um, so I think it's just perfectly normal function of human psychology. Okay, any other thoughts? Well, yeah, 
I mean, all the luck research that, that, that I did was about the, the, the power of believing that you are lucky. And as soon as you mm. do, you start to look for more opportunities, you act on them, you're more resilient uh, because you're convinced it's going to work out in the end. There's quite a lot of research that we conducted and others conducted showing the power of holding on to a lucky charm. So about the putter research, if you give people a putter, say this was used in some golfing championship and it won, um, versus it was used as a murder weapon is normally the... Um, uh, so that one's all bent, uh, so, it's, so it's much harder. But anyway, you give them the two. And um, uh, then people have a go at putting, and they're much better with the alleged lucky one. Uh, students go into exams uh, with mascots, do better than those that don't have their lucky mascot. And so all of this uh, sort of brings home that question of it, when is it rational to be irrational? When it's good for you to believe something that's not true, should you be doing it or not? And most atheists, I think, would argue actually you, you shouldn't be doing that, and you should just try and live your life according to rational principles, which is why they're so much fun to be around. Um, <laughs> and, and so enormously successful, obviously. Uh, so um, so I, I think it, it, that's, it's a really interesting issue. I, I don't know how you deal with that when you know that it's better to believe something that isn't true. Luck is interesting. That fits with your thing about patterns and people seeking out... Patterns, yeah. I mean, um, Rich is right. I mean, there, there's an issue to the extent that this is... Look, essentialism is actually part of the way we chop up the world. Um, we, are, we essentialize not just supernatural things. We essentialize the way we think about biology, as I've said, the way we think about personality attributes. We, we do it naturally. It's a very quick rule of thumb to assume that there's an underlying causal property which makes people who they are. Uh, we just do it naturally. But actually... When you look at it under a scientific lens, it turns out there is no essence as such. There's other sort of causal mechanisms for it. But it's a very useful mechanism. It allows you to do very quick sorts of things. And in the, in the case of feeling lucky, um, routines and patterns can provide you a sense of control. And superstitions thrive in circumstances which are unpredictable or the consequences of something going wrong are, are, are pretty awful. So disengaging in a practice which you believe gives you the perception of control is actually beneficial. So it is a rational strategy, even though, actually, at one level, it's not. Yeah, I think we have non-religious rituals, all of us, even us atheists. And I think, you know, and it is just a way of, of having a little sense of control and, and also not having to make certain sorts of decisions because you just do it out of habit. And I think that's exactly what superstition is. And equally, that's that in a, in, to a certain degree, that's what religion is as well, religious rituals. It's about forms of control social control like, of yourself in your context. You know, if I ran a church, um, I thought of a, uh, what I would say is, oh, look, this is a miracle that proves God exists. Jimmy Carter got better from brain cancer. And it's just because he's such a devout Christian and he does so much amazing stuff in the world, I just thought that was an example of its, you know, it's about science. Um, you might say it's about luck, but I think it's also about feeling something positive. But it also speaks and to the, the power of the anecdote. So well, you're right, you, you, but that, that sounds convincing until you think, well, hold on a second, we need a controlled trial. Yeah. There there must be some um, Christian people that have died uh, and some <laughs> atheists that have lived. Um, so, but, 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 but that sounds a very cynical reply, and, and, mm. and, and you know, as you say, it's the power of the anecdote there to, to convince, I think. Um, I want to talk about literalism. Um, and this is a story I've told Francesca. I, have, I had a wonderful teacher. She's still around. She's called Miss Gillian Thick, and she's a Christian, and she taught me RE O-level, which is now GCSE. And what I found fascinating was from the very beginning, um, it was, well, this is what people believe, and it was always presented as different people's beliefs, more like social anthropology. But she also talked about the different texts of the Bible, and they have letters like M and R, 
Jane, yeah. and you know, which I think at least one of them is a woman. Is that right? No. Oh well, maybe in 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 the early eighties, I think possibly it was thought that one of them might be a woman. Um, but I was fascinated by this idea that you can separate off belief from actually looking at the texts themselves and their social history, um, and that the two could coexist for people who have religious belief. Um, so I wanted to ask maybe you first, Francesca. What, how did literalism start? So obviously there are things like the Quran, which is supposed to be you know, the revealed word of God. The Bible seems a bit more problematic. And how has the status of the Bible changed? Because we know literalism is very strong in a lot of um, modern Christian communities. Literalism starts when you have any kind of conflict of authority. So with the New Testament, I mean, within Judaism and earliest Judaism, there's no problem at all about contradictory traditions and texts and stories. I mean, even within the book of Job, for example, that, that text is all about conflict and discussion and, and disagreements of interpretation. Judaism's completely happy with its rabbinic traditions to, like, disagree about stuff. But within Christianity, I think one of the biggest issues is, you know, so we've got four Gospels in the New Testament, and those are just the canonical ones. They're all massively different. Everyone emphasises their similarities, but they're more different than they are similar. And so it clearly wasn't a problem for earliest Christianity in deciding which texts were authoritative. So literalism only becomes a problem when you have, you know, kind of conflicts of power, uh, competition for power, who, ha who is the interpretive voice. And by that point, when you've got the circulation of texts, when texts are becoming books, codices, rather than becoming, you know, sort of expensive scrolls, that's when you begin to get a sense of, well, whose, whose book is it anyway? You know, which is the right book? And it's when you get the split, really, between, you know, the Christian church, uh, the Eastern church and the Western church, that it becomes really important. And Islam kind of totally keys into that. So it's, it's within that same cultural melting pot that you get the sense that somehow, if it's written down, and if it's God's word... Mm -hmm. Because most people would, you know, most early Christians would be totally happy to know, you know, they knew that these, weren't writ these texts weren't written by God. They were either written by Moses or by King David or Solomon or by the, you know, the evangelists, the, the disciples, which obviously they weren't, but, you know, that was the mm -hmm. belief. There was no sense in which they were written by God. So the idea about divine endorsement, that actually God was literally writing these words and they came kind of flying And they have a magical heaven. power then, which is yeah. why learning, and I know I was raised to read the Quran in Arabic, but not taught to understand a word of it. Um, and most, I, th I think it's fair to say most Muslim children still are. Mm. You, might, you might go on to do by, um, Quran studies, but there's a magical power in the words themselves. There's always themselves. been magic in words, always, yeah. I mean, it was a tremendously, it was a massive upheaval to, um, to start preaching the word of God in English. And people, uh, you, you know, pre-Reformation, people were executed for it. It was thought to be the most antisocial kind of thing. You know, Wycliffe was one of the early sufferers from that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the words still have an actual essence. Because they're magic, and that's what we were yeah. saying earlier, that yeah, words yeah. are magic, and any kind of writing is magic. What was, it, what was the use of texts in the cult that you were in? Um, well, it was just Street Chin Moyes. He, he wrote all these aphorisms and things. But talking about um, languages, he, he was Bengali and he wrote a lot of songs in Bengali, um, maybe a thousand, a few thousand songs, and we used to learn them and often we didn't know what they meant at all, you know, but it was, it was like saying the words, the words had the power and then of course it had the tune as well. Um, but the text, it was his own writings and his own lectures and things, which were not really terribly good. Um, <laughs> what sense? They, they so, were rubbish, quite frankly. So, so, so he relied more on the kind of the magical power of the chanting rather than actually being able to come up with. We relied coherent more on arguments. his presence than anything yeah. else. Just being in being in his presence and and in silent meditation. Tell them the dreadful story about the Albert Hall. What, what was that? When you had to hire the Albert Hall for him. 
Well, yeah, he came to it a few times, but what was the story? The story was basically that, that um, there was an enormous surcharge if the whole oh, thing yeah. continued after 10 o'clock. And um, I'm going to assume here he's a narcissist for narrative purposes, because oh, he probably was. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he was there. All of, the, all of the public had left. They'd had to put up posters on the tube and everything. So everybody's thinking, free gig, cool. Because um, the Albert Hall is, I mean, it's just a venue. You can hire yeah. it, can't you? Yeah, he was a complete bastard. He, the, 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 um, the, the Albert Hall is very, very expensive. We were putting on these free concerts at the Albert Hall, so it was his followers who had to pay. It was £80,000 by the time everything came. So it was, a, it was a big commitment, but we had it up until 10 o'clock or something, and then we had to get out, otherwise it would be a surcharge. And everyone had gone out, and he decided he wanted to stay on just with his disciples, and the poor guy who was organising, he was saying, get him out, get him out. You know? But he wouldn't, and he, he, he just left the centre with this huge bill to pay because he just wouldn't get out, you know? It, it was just badness. I don't know how we got to that. What I love about that, though, is that, I mean, I've been to some bad gigs, and you think, <laughs> I'll give it 15 minutes. Uh, if they're my mates, I'll give it a couple of hours. 20 years, though. I mean, that's, that's a hardcore commitment. I have to say, I'm saying all these things that bad about him, but for the first few years were among the happiest years of my life. See, it sounds like a marriage. It sounds like an abusive yeah. marriage. It's, it's kind it's of like that's how hard it is to like yeah. leave and yeah. to make yeah. decisions. And it's the psychological and... breakdown, I think, once you, you're in long enough. Yeah. It's, I can understand more why you wouldn't leave after a certain number of yeah. years than, yeah. um, no, the, than the, not. The, the start was absolutely wonderful. It really was some, some of the happiest times of my life. Just going back to the literalism yes, for one I, moment, I to go going back, back to, to what Francesca was saying, I don't know if any of you have read um, any of Karen Armstrong's books, but her whole thesis is that uh, when Protestantism came along and it was very literal, and it was, it was kind of a, a time of enlightenment shortly afterwards, so her idea is that people started to try to apply scientific... Um, standards of proof to religious truths, which previously people hadn't even thought in terms of. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what you think of that idea, but it, it, again, it was a matter of it was a matter of who the authority was. They were going, well, science is the latest thing. Science is far better than anything else that's gone. Yeah, far, science gets to the, the core of things. Therefore, we must be able to subject religion to science, and it, it doesn't do that very well. well. I wanted to ask both Richard um, and Bruce about this because. Um, it's two things. One is, you know, you have people today who say, no, God literally made the world in seven days, as in seven sets of 24 hours. Whereas plenty of Christians, I think, for hundreds of years have been happy that the seven days was more metaphorical. Um, that's the first thing. So why do you want to take that one? Why that level of literalism is still so strong, and in fact stronger in a way, probably, than it was in early Christianity and other religions? Well, if we can just maybe talk about the Enlightenment period, mm. because um, sure. um, science has been much older than the Enlightenment, but that's a period we're familiar with, well, at least I am, in that sense, that we mustn't forget that many of the founders of the Royal Society were deeply religious. Um, Boyle, for example, believed that through his experimentation, he could prove the existence of God. So his work with vacuums was to prove that there was this additional property that somehow gave things life. And, you know, he was the one who was sucking the life out of creatures by putting them into vacuums. Newton, of course, was also deeply religious as well. So uh, they didn't see any conflict there. They just thought this is an incredibly complex machine, but one that's been built ultimately by a divine creator. Um, and I think that's still basically the same message that a lot of scientists are walking around with today. Um, and they don't see this as a conflict. I, I think, and also it speaks to, again, this, this 
this word which is uncertainty, which is life is messy and uncertain, and that's very scary for lots of people. And so if you have this book with all of the answers in, and all you need to do is read that book, and it brings you that sense of certainty, I can see why for some people that's a very appealing thought. And if in order to buy into that, you need to believe a few things which seem a bit strange, um, then yeah, that, that's not much of a, a fee for... for believing that actually now you know the truth, not a truth, the truth, and there, there is enormous certainty in your life. But so many scientists, there are plenty of scientists who still believe that you can believe in God and pursue a successful career in science. They are not incompatible. So an example, um, Abdus Salam, who has died, but he won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1979. He was um, an Ahmadiyya Muslim. And, you know, he saw nothing fundamentally incompatible with doing incredibly important physics and being a practising Muslim. Why is that not? I'd say the data actually points to the fact that predominantly scientists are more likely to be atheists. I mean, yes, there are religious scientists, but they're not the, the majority. So the point isn't that, that whether they tend to be. The point is whether you can be both. Oh, yeah, you can certainly be both, but then that's an inconsistency, I would say, in um, your logic. Yeah. What Bruce was giving, sorry, were actually about the people with their religion and science were together. Most scientists nowadays, I think, who would profess to some kind of religious um, viewpoint, would keep their science very separate. Peter to their religion. Higgs, there's another example. Uh, I don't know Peter's religion, but I, I've never heard he's him talk about. Sorry? I'm pretty sure he's a, a Christian. Okay, but I, I, I don't think he's using any of that those Christian beliefs within his physics, as far as I know. No, but that's my point, is that hasn't a lot of religious practice changed? And that people say, yes, I believe in God, partly probably as a social thing, and they'd be very aware of that, but also partly as, as more of a, a metaphorical idea, and very different to the much more literal um, kinds of thinking of the past. There's one monolithic thing. Yeah. And in fact, um, there have been an awful lot of scales proposed for different types of religiosity. There was uh, one by Allport and Ross, which was the intrinsic and the extrinsic. Broadly, there are people who have personal, um, you know, supernatural experiences and they, it, it's personal to themselves. They feel like they have something to say. And then the extrinsic people are people who are more kind of just socially conforming, go to mass once a week or whatever. Now, to be fair, um, those, the scales are, you know, disputed amongst people. Some people add extra dimensions. But I think it does get to the basic truth of it that people are religious in very, very different ways. And if you have uh, personal supernatural experiences that are incredibly compelling, sometimes you're a very bad advert for religion because you can't get out of yourself enough to, to communicate it. Um, uh, but the, but there's nothing there's nothing incompatible between finding something you know sort of mysterious that you don't know the answer to and then doing your science on the side as well. Um, so it, it depends what kind of religious you are. And among young people in particular, I think literal interpretations of texts that are definitely on the rise. So are they? There's, yeah, there's this huge emphasis obviously at the moment on um, young Muslim, particularly young Muslim, yes. you know, um, men who are you know going off to join ISIS. But actually, we, you know, the biggest sorts of radicalisation that we've seen in the university campuses and in cities is evangelical Christianity, which is massively literal in a so number of interpretations. Like Not that. just creationism, but in terms of the way it understands gender, the way it understands authority, who has the power to speak. Just, just you know, he, you know, speaking in tongues is very, very common. Um, people literally oh, believing. You let's know, talk in... about speaking in tongues, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're. 
Okay. <laughs> Who would like to testify? Apparently, I do know that if you want to fake it, all you have to say is, she came on a Honda, she came on a Honda really, really quickly, and it sounds it's like she came on a Honda, she came on a Honda. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, how'd you follow that? <laughs> um, speaking in tongues, well, yeah, it uh, creates an altered state of mind, it's a big social compliance thing. Um, what do you want me to say about it? Well, it's I just wondered crazy. if you had looked into any research. Presumably people have tried to study people who've been through it, and I don't know if people sometimes who had that experience have come back later and have been able to analyse, in the way that you've analysed your past, what they were doing. I've been reading these um, biographies of uh, clergy who have become atheists, and um, some of them are American, and they, they did used to speak in tongues, and they're saying that... Um, they didn't know what they were saying, you know, that it was just social compliance, as you say, you know. Um, they might have thought something was happening, but really, even, even though they were clergy, they really didn't believe that, that it was divinely inspired. I think, Richard, what about your work on uh, hypnosis? I mean, isn't there some relevance there? Um, I, well, I haven't done very much, but the, um, I just realised that if it's just saying the same thing again and again and doesn't make any sense, it's, it gets most of my lectures for the last 20 years, actually. <laughs> I didn't realise that's what I was doing. Um, uh, so, no, I, I, like you, I suspect it's an altered state um, that people get into, which means they're going to have partial memory of it. Um, whoever the first person was that did it, there must have been an interesting response. Uh, people think, what the fuck's that about? Um, <laughs> but uh, but what, 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 did, what did you want to say about religion, though? I, I do think that, not for, for, for people who are literal, but I think for most people, if you go back about 10 years, to say you're religious, I think it was just a coder for saying, I'm quite a good person. Mm. And what's happened in the last five, ten years, maybe a little bit more than that, is that's changed. And now when you say I'm religious, I think people are not thinking, oh, good person. Uh, they're thinking, oh, a bit, a bit odd. Uh, <laughs> and it's that partially has fueled the rise of atheism. But I, I think for most people when they say I'm religious, if you're not a, a, a sort of um, very strong believer, for most people when they say religious, I think it's a bit like saying I'm a Mac user. You know, you, you're <laughs> kind of going, a little bit creative. Uh, so I... I so, so for me, the two are in the same camp uh, in, in terms of that. Because there's an argument about whether you say atheism or humanism, which I think is about belief, because obviously atheism implies the lack of something and that humanism implies a positive choice to something. Maybe belief is the wrong word, but it's interesting that humanism certainly feels like a word that might be more appealing to people. And atheism partly historically has that association with um, Stalinism and a kind of communist purging of of, you know, beliefs in, in countries. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. There's something about the notion of belief, even if we don't think of it, that actually is fundamentally required for us to be positive, feel positively. I think that's why... I mean, I personally don't... I don't mind being called an atheist. Um, I, a humanism, I'm not comfortable with the term because I think it, it's just too exclusionary of all the other non-human persons that I think... Well, no, like, like dolphins and cats and monkeys and hamsters. And so I, I think it's, it's too, it's too human-focused, personally. But that idealism that I have in me about wanting the whole world to be in like one big fluffy cuddle, um, human and non-human, is exactly what I think powers a lot of new religious movements that are very driven by the environmental agenda and are very driven by a want to move away from the very strict binary genders, sort of gender controls that we have in society. So I think, in a way, it's, it's not, there, there is a, it is about being positive, and it is about being utopian, and it is about wanting something better. I think atheism, you know, the, the, I've, I've said this before publicly, and I'll probably, you know, get booed for it, but, you know, Dawkins hasn't done us any favours by taking on this label, um, atheism. I mean, I, I, I think he, he's 
really gets religion wrong. Um, he really doesn't understand religion and its traditions, nor does he understand, I think, religious people particularly. But that's done more damage to the label atheism, I think, in recent years than, than perhaps any other sense of it being a negative thing. So it was something that um, so I interviewed Richard Dawkins at the British Humanist Association Conference a couple of years ago, and I put to him something Peter Higgs had apparently said, which was, isn't there positive case for saying humanists could make an alliance with moderate religious people against the really scary fundamentalists out there, rather than assuming that they're all the same, whether you're ISIS or you're, you know, that nice person who just goes to church on Sundays because they always have. Um. It's just defined by behaviour. I mean, the Simon Munnery's got... I'm going to sort of change his line a little bit um, because it's, we're broadcasting this, but Simon Munnery's line is, you know, if somebody throws you a baby and you don't catch it, you're not a very nice person. <laughs> and so I don't care whether it's an atheist, a Catholic, a Christian or whatever, if you don't catch the baby, you're not a very nice person. So I would just rather define anyone on whether or not they catch the baby, whether they're a nice person or not, rather than trying to give them a label, thinking that through whether I like them or dislike them, whether they're part of my clan, somebody else's clan, whatever. I just think it's fairly straightforward. No, Time, that baby will grow up and lie to you when you do an experiment on it. Lying baby. <laughs> but you add another 10 years to that and there are potential book sale. That's how I <laughs> um, So, swings um, and roundabouts. Yes. Alice, yeah. sorry. If, if I could just say that it's not just a question of religious people and non-believers and atheists. Um, there's, there's recent research that about 50% of the population in Britain now um, don't believe in God. But a lot of those people who don't believe in God believe in something else. You know, they believe in some power or some force or some energy. So um, it's, it's not just either you're religious or, or you're an atheist. The middle, the middle ground is very active and alive as well. That's interesting because I think the thing about the... Um, Basically, moderate religion providing a respectable reservoir into which, uh, you know, illogical ideas or something that's wrong can, can survive until it has a breakout as an, as, um, in extremist forms. That's, a, that's an idea against moderate religion. But I think that's assuming that we could get rid of ideas of moderate religion and a supernatural model of the universe. And I think we would spontaneously come up with them again and again and again. But the belief issue, I guess when other people say they believe in this stuff, because I don't think they do, if we had in every hospital, you cut every hospital in half and you have the normal hospital and then wards where people would just pray for you. <laughs> I could save the NHS millions with this. <clears throat> so you go in and you have that choice. You can either go to a prayer ward or you can go to a medical ward. I don't think there's going to be many people in the prayer ward. I, you know, there'll be a sum, there's some, and good on them, uh, for... <laughs> Uh, for sticking with it when the going got tough. But I, th I, think, I think most people are going to be in the mess. I don't know when they say, I believe. You go, yeah, you don't really believe, do you? Because when it comes to behaviour... No, but the thing would be if you refuse to allow people to pray on the medical side of the hospital. Is that going on? Is that part of the NHS? If no, that's I'm going just on... Saying... In... I had no idea. <laughs> this is sure a scandal. kind of experiment we're setting up here. But... Um... But yes, I, it, you, know, uh... you do meet people who are very militant about, you know, it's all or nothing. You know, either you properly don't have any kind of supernatural belief system, um, you know, or your... your no, no, let's ban prayer. Let's ban prayer in the other half of the hospital. You can either have all prayer or no prayer and medicine. Which, which way are you going to go? Okay. I, my guess is that, that the, the, the hospitals, the ones with medicine, are very, very crowded. And that's because people say they believe and they don't really believe. It makes me sick. <laughs> let's take some questions at this point. Um, I think we've got a couple of microphones. Is that right? 
We've got an arm up there. I've just got to find out where our microphones are. Do people from upstairs need to come down if they want to ask a question? Have we got one to go upstairs? Right. Put a word in for Richard Dawkins, by the way. We don't agree on things, a lot of things, um, and I probably would be classed as a bit of an apologist in some people's views because I tend to think that the natural default for us is to towards uh, the notion of the supernatural. On the other hand, I think he's been very important in staking out the extreme territory, which has allowed the rest of us to feel more comfortable of espousing our views. So, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't have taken the heat that he's done, um, but I think we do need to recognize that, you know, I think he has played a very important role in making this conversations that you couldn't possibly have had easily 10 years ago. Yeah, and certainly if you think about the conversations you have in public in America, if you want to be in public life and you'd say you don't believe in God, um, it's a very different climate there. Right, um, have you got a microphone up the top then? Right, there's going to be a gentleman here, and then, sorry, there's someone there too. I'm going to stop with a couple down here. Where's our microphones, please? Right, uh, hands up. Right, we'll take the gentleman there, and then I'm going to take um, the one in the fourth row here with the... Jumper, yes, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I just wanted to ask, if, you, if we introduced critical thinking skills into the national curriculum, do you think people would slowly wean off belief, or do you think there's something still inherent that we, the cognitive, di cognitive dissonance would kick in and we'd still hold two opposing ideas at the same time? If you talk critical, I think technically we do teach critical thinking in schools, but a lot of them are faith schools, which is also part of the picture, isn't it? What are your thoughts about what we teach in schools and its potential effect on I think a lot belief? of the, um, the propensity to believe these things is because they tap into deep-seated intuitions about the nature of the world. And that's my, kind of my research, is that we look at these things emerging in children before they become indoctrinated. And there's a lot of good evidence that we already are primed to assume essentialist positions, to see, see causality where there is none. We just, our brain just seeks out patterns and explanations all the time. So yes, critical thinking and rationality you can teach, but it never entirely goes away. And if you get the circumstances right, like a time of economic uh, you know, dips or you know, you're at 30,000 feet and the plane hits turbulence, people start to pray. Yeah, and who wants to like, just be completely rational all the time? I mean, what about imagination and enthusiasm and creativity? I mean, those things are just as important I think, to what it is to be a human being. So I think the way we teach religion in schools ought to change. Um, I do think all religion... I, do, I think religion should be taught in school, but not in an instructive way. I think we need to understand what different religions are and what, why they work and why they don't work. Um, and I'd be out of a job in a few years if we mm -hmm. stopped teaching religions in schools because I'd have no undergraduates. But, but yeah, who, who wants to be? Yeah, why would we want to be completely rational, boring? You end up being a scientist or something. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on this, well, Alice? I think the number of people who are committed to religion is declining anyway, and it has been declining for decades. Younger people are less religious than older people. So I think whether they're getting critical thinking or not, religion is declining. Okay. Deborah? Um, I the it was about whether teaching critical... Oh. oh, right, but it's just Francesca talking about RE lessons at school reminded me of my most excellent RE teacher, most wonderful woman called Miss McNear, who didn't shave her legs and it looked like she had hamsters fighting under her tights. <laughs> and uh, and um, we got exactly that kind of religious education. It was fantastic. Yeah. And it was, in many ways, better than critical thinking 
because we l looked in an anthropological yes. sense and a perfectly respectful sense at um, six religions over the course. I of did. Ex I think we did years. the same syllabus. It was just, I think the RE syllabus has changed a lot. And the irony is, it had more straightforward social anthropological anthropological content 30 years ago. Then Did I your teacher also have really hairy legs? No, Miss Thick is lovely, and she's, if she's out there watching, I think she's brilliant. So. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my RS teacher was Mrs Craddock, and she sent me out of the classroom at the age of 11 because I refused to draw a picture of heaven. And, um, and I was sent to the headmistress. I mean, and it was, it was really... I think that's why I've turned out where I have. <laughs> yeah. Ken Robinson has that lovely story about the kids drawing, isn't it? And the teacher says, what are you drawing? The kids says, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, no one knows what God looks like. And the kid says, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, uh, so, so I, the, the, with the question, it, the, it's the question that saddens me. You're right to answer the, uh, ask the question, but it saddens me that if you're saying, should we teach children how to collect evidence, to assess evidence, to be sceptical of politicians and religious figures, of course we should be teaching that in schools. We should be teaching it right now in schools. Um, that's what education should be partially about. We need all those other things as well. But my goodness, we're not that, uh, teaching kids how to collect and collate and assess evidence in a sceptical way. That's the key skill, I think, that we should be teaching them. Thank you. Right, you've got the microphone there. Go ahead. Um, so you've been talking about belief and religion and all these things, um, and one of the points I really enjoyed was the talk about the plurality of religious concepts. I'm thinking about the religions that deny the um, existence of truth. For instance, you have the via negativa in, in Christianity. You have this notion that to attribute anything to God, even existence to God, is, is heresy. You have this notion in Buddhism that the um, journey to the West, that the real Buddhist scriptures were the ones that were made out of blank pages. You know, so there seems to be a very active religious tradition denying um, that um, any role of belief or fact or knowledge or, or anything that can be um, articulated as an inherent part of the religious tradition. And how does that fit into all of this? I'm not quite sure not I got sure. that. <laughs> Was it about things like satanic verses, this idea of that, that stuff, this stuff being challenged within texts? The idea that um, positive statements of fact about religion are heresy. Oh. oh, so you can't say, so we can't truly know the nature of God because exactly. to claim that you can know the nature of God is to... facts are just irrelevant and heresy and... Isn't that to do with taboos, really? Yeah, to a certain degree it's to do with taboos, and to a certain degree it's about, again, it's trying to negotiate that relationship between the divine and the human, and to what extent, so like even the, the Adam and Eve story in the Bible is like a good example of the way in which you can be close to God and the, and, and the heavenly, but if you get too close, if you cross that boundary, so the trees that Adam and Eve eat from in the garden, that represents a, a proper boundary between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, and by kind of crossing that boundary and ascending upwards, then God's like, you know, sod this, like, you know, I'm immortal and, and I have wisdom. So there is a sense that divine wisdom and knowledge is somehow meant to be inaccessible Unnoble. to humans, yeah. Um, and there's a kind of magic to it, like the whole thing about, you know, not being allowed to say the name of God and stuff like that. Yeah, which I really like. And I, yeah. and I still ask students if it's okay if I say the name Yahweh or whatever, because you need to, to kind of, you know, you need to respect other people's views. And, and in this age of trigger warnings in, in the university lecture room, you know, I, you've got, I've got to trigger warn practically everything I say. But, but yeah, I, 
I kind of like, I, 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 who would want to reduce God to just this, like, you know, I'm not a believer, but why would you want to reduce your God to this bodiless, shapeless, empty, kind of unknown, you know, the, the, the whole point of God is about, it seems to me, is again this, like, sociality and relationship and religions that kind of strip that away, uh, what have they got? Oh, no, but then you think about that, the climax of India, what's that, India, the first one? A Raiders of the Lost Ark. Come on, isn't that the most scary? Still, no matter how many times you've seen it, and it the works. Yes, it works because you have that horror about the idea you, you've transgressed and you've crossed that line, and that's the power of that film. Not if you're a black magician. Um, <laughs> the, I, I'm, well, the, one of the problems with presenting religion as a compensatory mechanism, and, and that's what it is, is to, you've got to point out that a lot of religious ideas are more scary than not having them. So that it, it kind of doesn't work that way, and the Ark of the Covenant is a very good example of that. But if you're, if you're going for more magical traditions, then um, uh, you would start with the kind of as above, so below kind of thing, so that a, a person is a very, is, is a microcosmic version of what the universe is. In other words, you could and commune with the universe through the proper rituals and through the proper understandings. So you you just um, you it, it's not that you commune with God; it's that you kind of are God in a certain way. You've just let it flow through you. He takes it on, and Judaism takes it on in certain ways. That you know we are our bodies do map onto the cosmos, and we do map onto to God, the gods in, in some way. And Christianity, in some ways, has been better at holding on to that. It's just sort of transferred it to the idea of church. But it's been better at holding on to that. Thing ever, though. Isn't it just ego? I mean, isn't it the truth that you're born, a few years on earth, you die? Of course. That's it. So just, but to tell somebody, oh, you've got a bit of God in you. But that's exactly why religion works for some people, is because it makes people, the most successful religions, like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, are the ones that make you feel special, that make you feel like there is something, that there is some kind of value and worth to either your life or your death. And, and, and that's, why, that's why it works. Mm. Like, for the rest of us, you know, we're just... So if, you if, you the, if you weren't an atheist, what, what would you be? If you had Polytheist, a... ancient, probably Greek, possibly Mesopotamian. <laughs> <laughs> Thought about it. I was going to say Quaker, <laughs> but I'm not going to bother now. <laughs> right. Have you got the microphone? Um, looking at the title, <clears throat> Why Do You Believe, or Why Do We Believe?, if we look at history, I wanted to ask this question to the panel. If we look at history in the old times, in different parts of the world, people believe in many gods and goddesses. And in different ways, they have different ways of explaining the world, explaining how we should live and the morality, etc. And we see our world today, all that is almost gone in many places. My question is, are we born atheists and then indoctrinated? Or is it something inherent in the human mind that takes us to believe in something despite of cultural uh, indoctrination, if you like? Okay. Um, do you want to take that one first, Richard and Bruce? Well, Bruce? Um, there's a large body, emerging body of research into the origins of religious belief in children, developmental origins of it. Yes, they are susceptible to testimony and indoctrination. No child is born Jewish or born Islamic. That's the religion that they adopt. And they're motivated to adopt those belief systems because they are uh, immersed in those systems. But all religions tend to have very similar uh, stories uh, or similar accounts, that similar features. This is something that's been pointed out by a number of researchers. And as I've said, uh, you know, there are issues about... Uh, existential crisis, that for, you know, there are questions, where do we go, what's my purpose, 
Children are starting to become aware of those things. Uh, they become aware about death. Uh, at first, they don't understand it, and then they get around about three years of age, they start to understand there's something, you know, a change of state. So I suppose the long answer to the, the question is, is that there are many um, predispositions which would probably emerge spontaneously. So I'd ask you to imagine um, Lord of the Flies, mm. imagine an island without any society and somehow children survive. My prediction is that we generate their own gods, their own explanations, their own natural uh, accounts. I think Penn out of Penn and Teller made an interesting point, which is that he said precisely that, that you imagine another world, let's start all again, and we evolve and we're at this state. Imagine another world. It's easy to believe there would be religion and that it would be a different type of god and so on. But in terms of science, the science that would evolve must be the same. So it's, it's kind of a real fundamental distinction there. I don't know if it's true or not, but, but, but it's an interesting thought that the, that the science that would emerge, the facts that emerge, as it were, must be the same on both worlds. The religion would be very different. Assuming that it's the phys same physical dimension. Right. Yes, of course. Right. Although, although different types of religion tend to um, arise under different circumstances, uh, worshipping one kind of big god in the sky is very unusual religious sort of form. People most often start worshipping their ancestors or worshipping um, the, the nature around them. So they have a, a supernatural relationship with the things that they can't see, that they can't believe aren't still acting. Um, I, there's a very good book by a guy called Pascal Boyer, who's an anthropologist. He wrote a book called Religion Explained. And he t spoke about um, ontological characters um, categories and the different variations. So you might, for example, lots of religions have a story about a woman who had a baby despite the fact that she'd never had sex. But not many religions, in fact none to my knowledge, have a woman, uh, have a story about a woman who had a baby and she'd had 37 babies before. And they're both as peculiar and unlikely, but just one of them is simply more compelling as a story. So we, have, we, have, we do have a limited number of story variations that appeal to us. Interesting. Right, let's take a couple more questions. Um, where are all our microphones? Uh, can I take the one for the second row here? And then was there a lady over there with her arm up? Yes. With the red hair? We'll take that one next. I'd like to ask how, as sceptics um, and as rationalists, we respond to false belief systems that fly in the face of evidence. So, for example, um, creationists, anti-vaccinationists. How do we respond to that? Where does that come from? How, where do those narratives Question. come from? How do they spread? Well, clearly, any practice which uh, threatens the uh, safety, the health, and you know, moral guidance of other people is something that you should fight against. Um, and so I, I, it's going back to a point that Richard made earlier on, uh, it's really the actions are the most important thing to judge it. So clearly, that's how you, I, you know, if you can believe whatever the hell you like and have no evidence for it, but as soon as you impose your belief systems on others, which threatens them to whatever way, then that's the point where I think you have to take a stand. But do you have a view on why? I mean, the anti-vaccine movement is such an interesting one. Well, it's dangerous. No, but, why, but why it's grown in the modern age when we know more than we ever knew before about why Part, vaccination works? Well, this is a very interesting point, actually. I mean, and it goes back to the point about teaching critical thinking. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us are uncritical and very susceptible to what we read in the media. And if people have agendas, it's really difficult sometimes to counteract that with evidence because scientists... Um, don't speak like that in terms of truth. They speak in probabilities. They speak in mm -hmm. scientific jargon. It's presented as truth. It's presented. It's taken out of context normally. Mm -hmm. And, and often the scientists, I have to hold my hand up. Well, 
I think we are under, under a lot of pressure to demonstrate our worth to society by coming up with things. And so very often, the rush to publication, the rush to make the headline uh, preempts the due process of, of scientific uh, validation. So um, there is there is systemic problems, I think, in conveying science. Um, and as, as I said, most of us now uh, are so distanced from the technologies and the sophistication of our science, we just take everything mm, on, on truth. And, and so that's part of the problem. We're not, we can't all be sophisticated enough to understand exactly how a mobile phone works. The interesting thing about anti-vaxxers as well is that it's not um, an ignorant movement. There are an awful lot of people who are very wealthy. They've been um, educated. It's a very middle-class movement, and it, it stems more from their... Uh, belief that they can assert themselves and that they're entitled to an opinion and that they, they might be right, that they're right. They're very, they're very forthright and confident um, and they may be highly educated in English literature, just not educated in science. I had colleagues at Channel 4 News who didn't get their children vaccinated. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. also there's this idea that big pharma is really evil you know, and yeah. the, the, I think this is really important, yeah. actually, this idea that there has been cover-ups, even if they've been relatively isolated, that scientists have sometimes lied um, or colluded with corrupt powers, and yeah. that's remembered. Yeah, and, and, and they're, they're primarily there to make money. You know, so if they can get everyone vaccinated, then they make a lot of money, so they're not going to vaccinate my child, you know, because um, they might get autism or something like that. Richard? I mean, to answer the question, it's a very good question. I, uh, part of it is we have to remember that we're all irrational to some extent. And so all these studies we ask people, um, you know, uh, have you got an above average sense of humour? You know, all of you. I think, well, I have actually. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I, are you an above average driver in terms of safety? That's the vast majority of you too. Um, you can go into hospital wards where people have had accidents that were their fault. They're still above average drivers, it turns out, uh, in terms of safety. We all harbour these beliefs. The reason why we do it mostly is because it makes us feel good. And, and so um, I, I think in terms of dealing with folks that have different beliefs uh, to our, our own is we have to understand that the functionality of those beliefs, not, not only arguing on evidence, but also what, what is that evidence doing for you? What, what, sorry, what is that belief doing for you? Is it making you feel good? Is it making you feel special? Do you have something to say when you go to a party that you wouldn't have otherwise? So if you've had a psychic experience, you have something to talk about. You know, I, I've never been to a party and went, hey, everyone, I've never seen a ghost. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> um, so so, so I, I think as a psychologist, I would say, what, what function are these things serving? Because then you get into belief modification, if that's what you want to do, a lot more effectively. It's not about the evidence for the most part. Thank you. Oh, There's a question up there. Thank you. Hi, just on, <coughs> sorry, just on your idea with the NHS hospital system with the two different um, wards, one that was a prayer one that wasn't, I just wonder whether you think that you can actually stop people using their belief system if you put them on the medical ward because I've, I've had people come under my treatment during the month for Ramadan and there was a gentleman that was for all intents and purposes having a heart attack and he refused to take oral medicine. He was quite happy to take the stuff for his veins but he refused aspirin and some of the other stuff that we give normally for that condition and if you offered him the chance to go to the medical ward, I believe he would say, yes, I'll go to the medical ward, I'll get my treatment. But you're not going to be able to stop him thinking to his God while he's under that treatment. He might not say anything about aloud, or he might not be just particularly demonstrative of it, but I wonder whether you can actually make people stop. I think you can make people stop 
being demonstrated about and some people go, no, this is against the moral code of my religion, I'll go to the prayer ward. But I do believe there's a great number of people who in their time of need would still think to their God even if they're not being particularly overt about it. Thank you. Um, I can say just about that, you're not supposed, to, if you're sick, you're not supposed to fast. I mean, it's just... And it's so interesting how much more literalist practice has grown in religions like Islam. Certainly when I was growing up as a child, these things were not happening on this scale. But anyway, thoughts about... My idea with NHS, it was a joke. Um, I, don't, I don't want... I got some Tory MP going, it's, it's an interesting thought. And, uh, um, so I, I, I suppose the, the thought experiment was simply to, to point out differences between what people say they, they, they believe and how their actual behaviour. And as a psychologist, you always go with uh, behaviour, you never go with um, belief. Uh, because people will tell you anything. You know, it's like job interviews. turns out the most creative, wonderful, great person, uh, even though they've just been made redundant from 20 jobs in a row uh, for appalling behaviour. Um, so so uh, the, the, the question, though, was can you force... Can you force people to sort of stop from religious practice if it's interfering in medical treatment? Is that right? Is that... It's belt and braces, isn't it? You can keep your religious belief quiet and you can take the science and, you know, you've got both. It was a joke. I'm not, like... <laughs> I just, I just so wish I'd mentioned it at all now. Um, I th yeah, no, yes. take your point. Let's try and get one more in. Um, I'm going to take the lady at the very, very front there. The microphone. I think it's worth pointing out that, of course, there are lots of, lots of people who like to end their lives, and they can't in this country because it's considered uh, illegal. So it's not just saving lives. Mm -hmm. Oh, was it a round of applause there or a clap? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that. I'm not sure how many members of the panel have been active in the wilder reaches of the internet, um, but I'd be really interested to hear from those who have their thoughts on the rise of a very sort of um, a kind of identity politics that seems to be very much based on magical thinking. So ideas that you have an essence, like that you have an essence of a plant or the essence of a, 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 a unicorn and your plant kin. I mean, there, there's actually someone, a friend of mine met someone who was plant kin and you had to refer to them as... Uh, actually, I can't remember their pronouns, but they were special plant pronouns. Anyway, I'd just be really interested to know if the panel thinks that the rise in this identity politics amongst young people has anything to do with the rise of atheism, and if it's a sort of sign of us needing to find some kind of magical thing to believe in. Good question. I think, sorry, I just because this time so much of the kind of thing that's been going on this week in the news about. Um, you know, the campaign to pull down the, the Rose statue in, in Oxford. And, and there's a sense very much in which we, we kind of, the media especially, seems to be thinking that as young people, somehow, this generation of young people are, like, more radical than previous generations. They're not more radical. We've just got the internet. And so, you know, on social media, like, movements and, and petitions, like, just go, get faster. They get wider and, and faster. But... Um, I don't, th I, I, I don't care what people believe. As long as they're not hurting them, like other people or animals, they can believe what they want to believe. I don't care. If they want me to call them the plant king, I'll call them the plant but king. But it's, <laughs> it's also linked to things like... I mean, actually, like no, there's... but it was more about, you know, is, is it why? It seems to be a rise, and I was just wondering if you think I don't think it is a rise. That's the thing. I don't think there is a rise. I think it's always it. been there. It's just that it, ha it travels faster culturally and socially because of Twitter and... You can find, you can find and... other plantkin people more easily. Yeah, I think because that's all it is. I don't think yeah. this generation is any more radical than previous generations, you know, in the last sort of 50 years have been. What are the rest of your thoughts about the rise? I think it's definitely growing. You do? Yeah. I, I think it's growing. Um, people 
build their own belief system. They take it maybe a bit of from yoga, from Hinduism, maybe a little bit of Christianity, maybe some some other magical things from shamans, and they build their own thing. And they have very different beliefs. Um, so you have the the religions are declining. Atheists are not attractive because of the connotations with atheism. And then you have this whole middle group who've just got a, a pick and mix of religion. Yeah, I know many people like that. <laughs> No religion or cult has ever stayed static. I mean, they always shift and change and, and there's always a flux about them and, and they always take on new things. So, you know, it may be that, uh, you know, a pope in 100 years' time is going to be the new plant king as well. Who knows? The thing about this one is it's not organised to the, the same way that religion is, you know, that, that people make up their own religion. But rather, I don't think religion necessarily religion. is always organised. I don't, I don't think there's that distinction between a religion and a, and a cult or... A, mm. Okay. I think that's a false Let's get everyone else in on this. What are your thoughts on this? Debate? Well, I think anybody who thinks that teenage practices are now more ridiculous didn't see a picture of me going out on a Saturday night in the 80s. So, um, <laughs> um, as for uh, whether or not people... Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what people are into being plant kings and that kind of thing. That's something that's... It's plant kin. I know, plant kin, I kin. sorry. Plant I thought it was a plant I king. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a crown. I thought <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> plant kin. Um, what I would say is that there, you, you can have your top-down um, authoritarian religiosity where, you know, the priest knows everything and tells you. And, in fact, you can go to him and you can find out whether or not you're wrong, wrong, wrong. And it's, it's a very top-down kind of thing. And then at different times, other times, you get people wanting to be self-facilitating. And in that case, the people who are the most charismatic win. And um, being a psychic is a classic example of that. You know, you, my, uh, um, my family background, you know, all, all the women, they're all they were all psychic and they were going back three generations they were all incredibly poor and it was the way that you dis the way you distinguished yourself in your life they had no real agency they didn't have degrees or qualifications or professional paths or anything like that so it was by the force of your personality and by your identity that you created for yourself um, that you know that was what they had maybe there's an element of that I don't know Richard uh, I like the idea of the plantkin uh, being a, a growing movement, uh, <laughs> particularly during the summer months. And I, so I don't know whether it's a good idea. It sounds quite harmless to me. What I, what I would predict is all the plantkin people at the moment will gather together and they'll form a single uh, group and then you'll get a splinter group of carrot-related uh, <laughs> And they'll break off, and you'll get all that kind of self-identity uh, stuff coming out. So I, I agree with Deborah. I, I think it's just a way of expressing yourself, a way of being special, of saying to people, I'm not like you, I'm different, I've got my little subgroup here. And whether you're dyeing your hair pink or whatever it is, or, or pretending you're a, a plant um, or a unicorn, I think it's all the same thing, and quite frankly, I, I think it's glorious. I think it's absolutely fine. I would encourage anyone to join that movement. Um, oh, great, so I get to end up on this one. All right, <laughs> thanks. Uh, okay, I'm not a geneticist. I know there's a few in the audience. I'm led to believe that we share about 98% of our genes with chimpanzees, but I think it might be also true that we also share around 50% with bananas. So the plantkins are probably right. You see, I was gonna, I'm going to end up on a really serious note. You see, I think there's something similar to what you're talking about, and those girls who go off to join ISIS. I think a lot of young people are looking for identity, and they look in different ways, and some, with their innocence and their earnestness, can get sucked into quite dark places, and others in lighter ones. Um, they would have other options. I mean, you know, it's serious that they're 
so up to their ears in debt from um, their educations, and who can buy a house, or you know, you, you have internships rather than um, paying careers. It's harder now to be a young person than it was when we were young, mm -hmm. and uh, it, perhaps it's another option for identity. Um, I want to say before we finish that um, there are lots of great London Thinks events, but there's one coming up in March, which was my idea, and it's called... Um, is Han Solo a humanist? And yeah, you're on that. And it's my, I went to see Star Wars four times and I thought we should do one about the religion and ethics of Star Wars. So you should come to that. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I think you've got a priest. I don't know if you've got Kylo Ren. I'm trying, but you know, um, but just for that work. But I would like to say thank you. I'm sorry we couldn't get through more questions, but God, we had such an interesting conversation. Can I just thank everyone on the panel and all of you for your time this evening? Thank you.